Hello and welcome to The Thing About Golf, Golf Australia Magazine's podcast series attempting to answer that eternal question, what draws us all to this extraordinary game? My name's Rod Murray and I'm your tour guide on these explorations into the minds of those for whom golf is more, so much more, than just a game. A couple of episodes ago, we chatted with ALPG head Karen Lunn, and we noted at the time how unusual it is for a player to transition to administration after their tournament days are done. Not quite as rare, though still hardly common, is the player who turns to coaching. Now, there's likely a few reasons for that, not the least of them being that for many players, their own above-average ability is actually a bit of a mystery to them. I mean, after all, there's no need to understand an engine just because you want to race a car. Today's guest was in that category for much of a playing career that showed flashes of brilliance that were truly extraordinary. Brad Hughes was always known as a level above when it came to ball striking, and on those weeks when his putting matched, he was close to unbeatable. But as the game moved away from the heavy wooden clubs of his youth, Hughes's advantage became less and less. He began a search to understand the swing, a search which has ultimately seen him emerge as one of the game's most sought-after coaches. Hughes now famously works with a number of tour players, and one can't help but get the feeling that beyond just his knowledge of the mechanics of the swing, it's Hughes's credibility as a player that resonates with his brethren. As always, this discussion is broad and it covers well, first multiple first, topics. First, I say thank you for taking but the time, Brad. Is an interesting thinker so many people and an engaging speaker in the world of golf. As we enjoy, that you probably haven't got much time to discussion. Yourself, so appreciate you taking time to chat to us today, mate. Golf. Welcome. You are welcome. Yeah, uh, the podcast is called "The Thing About Golf," and our jumping-off point is to for you to answer this question for me or finish this sentence for me. The thing about golf is anybody can become good. Oh, wow. Okay. Tease that out for me because I I reckon I'm living proof that you're wrong. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, no one's one's born with a golf club in their hands, so no one knows what they're doing initially. Some people pick it up quicker than others. Some have – you wouldn't call it natural talent, but some people just know how to move things better and understand things better than someone else. But everyone has the opportunity to – improve themselves and get good at this game if they, one, follow a good path, two, work hard at it on the right information. You know, everyone can go down rabbit holes. I love the example of Larry Nelson, who really didn't play golf until he was 21 years old and he picked up Ben Hogan's book and he won two PGAs in the US Open, you know, not that long after that, maybe within 15 to 18 years of basically learning at a a later stage everyone thinks to be good you have to pick it up young and be a natural like tiger woods you know have a good swing when you're two three years old but there's obviously a lot of different cases that say otherwise yeah nelson is a staggering example isn't he really could could we imagine that happening again in this day and age what do you reckon that's about you probably you've given this some thought but it's an amazing story that we don't talk enough about larry nelson isn't he he is. Um, you know, I think I think that's a bit of an anomaly now just because, one, the equipment's a big equaliser today. You could, you could play, you know, you could learn to use the older stuff. There was a few more uh, skill sets you had to learn, long irons and hitting the wood out of the, out of the screws and things like that. Now everyone seems to 
have a greater opportunity at a younger age. And we, and we only, you know, we know that from, I don't remember the, the young kid's name, but several years back now, that 14-year-old that won the Asia Amateur and got to play mm-hmm. in the Masters. And, you know, things like that were more commonplace in tennis, not in golf, because golf, you had to learn a lot more. You had to learn to keep the spin off a ball. You had to learn to be able to roost it high. You had to learn to knock shots down. And a lot of that stuff has sort of been taken away just because of the the requirements that the, the game puts on you now that you don't need as many skill sets. So the kids are getting better earlier because they don't need to maybe learn as much as what we had to when we went through it all. Yeah, Guan Tian Lang is the young man who joined because he got the two-shot penalty for slow play, which John Paramore told us about when we had him on the Thing About Golf podcast. You're right, Bradley. I remember the time when a golfer, it was accepted wisdom, a golfer matured in their 30s. You played your best golf in your 30s. And that's really what that was about, wasn't it? You sort of had 10 years to really learn the craft. Correct. And and travelling, you know, that people forget that that's a – that's a big uh, influence on how people play. Some people are made for it. Some people aren't. So, you know, and now they're out traveling, playing all these junior squads when they're very young age and, and getting the experience. And it's just people are just better prepared now. Um, I guess you could maybe state a case for the the track man and all that stuff that they, they have a better subnosis of what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong when they're playing well and when they're playing bad and it's probably easier or quicker to fix any faults or or things like that you know we had to play by by memory but oh that felt good uh, what did I do there and then you didn't have that feedback it was more personal or a set of eyes that were telling you what you did correctly or incorrectly so there's been a lot of advantages in the last few years that the the better players, or not the better players, let's say, you know, the increased skill level or performance level is happening at a younger age than it was. Mm-hmm. And there's just a lot more players now that are in that group. I'm, you know, I always class myself as a pretty good ball striker. I could hit a driver really well. I could get a long iron really well. I could take spin off a nine iron and keep it flighted down. I could do a lot of those things that, you know, you didn't learn overnight, and um, now a lot of that stuff is 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 there. So you couldn't, you can't. It's very hard to separate yourself from the field these days. You know, you, you had your Greg Norman, who was everyone still drools over how he hit the driver, and I I remember it well. The first time I ever saw him hit one, it went about two hundred yards, about eight foot in the air, and then all of a sudden you could hear the ball fizz, and it went up up in the sky, and went out there 300 yards and once I saw that I said that's how I want to hit it (laughs) so it's uh you know it it just it's just a different it's a different game and and you know that from all the talks you've had and Mm -hmm. with Clates and a lot of people and you know and we sound all fuddy-duddy and old but it is a very different game and it's a yeah I'm not saying one's better than the other but I think in years past if you were very good at some aspect of the game you had a a greater opportunity to uh, branch yourself sort of apart from the pack a little bit, whereas nowadays it's not necessarily the the ball hitting that is um, making people separate themselves. It, it's probably more the putter or the mental game or, 
or a bit of distance or things like that. It wasn't as it's not as craftsmanship as it probably was. A bit, bit more sort of one-dimensional. We'll come back to some of that. This podcast always ends up at some sort of discussion about the state of the game and equipment. I got in early. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. No drama, no drama with that. I think, I think the audience know what they're letting themselves in for. And when they saw your name in the tagline, they probably really knew what they were in for. Just to back up a bit, something I was thinking about when you were just talking then – with TrackMan and, and some of the technologies, and particularly in coaching and, and the physical uh, training of the body for the golf swing, we see these players who are physically obviously much more advanced earlier than we used to see. But has that created a bit of a divide in in those who have now have the chance to succeed? I guess I'll explain that. I, I, I think about when you were 15 and played in the Vic Open. Um, you're a kid from Victoria. You were good at footy. You were good at golf. You were probably good at cricket. You good at everything that you tried, it seems, with sport, and you had some opportunities and you made your way and made a career out of golf. I wonder if that's still open to a kid without resources from somewhere in the suburbs of be it Australia or somewhere in Asia without access to some of those technologies, the track man and the coaching and that. Have we changed the makeup of the professional game to be a more – do you see what I'm saying there? Can a poor kid still make it? Can we have another Lee Trevino in the modern world? <clears throat> Uh, of course. I mean, you know, we have some initiatives over here in America, the first tee. Now, I don't know a lot about it because I have not set foot in one or, or seen how it all works. But I, uh, I was working with Brant Snedeker the other day and he's talking about his his old golf clubs. And he was, you know, just fiddling around with some clubs and what, what felt good to him. And he, he's using like an older driver, not the, the new high tech stuff as much. And I said, what other clubs have you got? And he goes, I don't really have that many. I gave them all the way to the first tee. So it's amazing that, you know, I don't know what they do with them when they get them, but I'm sure a lot of kids, the access is there if if the parents or if the kids are willing. I think there's plenty of that, you know, and I'm just talking America at the moment, mm-hmm. that there are there are opportunities for those kids to – to have the chance now, whether they get the top-notch coaching or not, and the opportunity to, to go hit some and enjoy it and see what happens, and that's what we did. Like like you mentioned, I played, um, I got signed to play AFL football for Melbourne when I was fifteen, and at the same time, I played in the Vic Open, and I just weighed up the pros and cons, and I thought, you know what, football would be great, sort of my lifelong thing since I was four years old of kicking a footy and love to run out in the MCG and and play in the big league and that. But on the other hand, everyone seems to be getting bigger and they want to beat the heck out of me every week. So maybe golf's a little bit safer and golf's a little bit more longevity. And I love playing football and I love training for football, but golf I love practicing. I lo- I loved everything about it. So I think it's an individual mentality as well. You have to, mm-hmm. you have to obviously love something, and and I was fortunate that I had the opportunity to to cover both bases. I could see which which path I enjoyed. I I don't say I feel sorry for some people that I just golf 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 all the time. I think it's great to have options. You know, it's great to see how you go in different things. Golf's very lonely sport. Football, others are a team sport. So. It depends on the individuality, uh, individual, which which side you take. And I just found I loved practicing. I didn't need anyone else there. I didn't need a track man. I just needed a shag bag of a hundred balls and my set of clubs, and 
a sandwich and a drink and I could go down there all day and make fun of it and enjoy it and work at it and come off feeling better at the end of the day. Yeah. And, of course, you, you you can't have that whole problem of playing well in a losing team or playing poorly in a winning team and all of that comes with it with those team sports. Golf, it's all on you, isn't it, which is both one of the appeals of it, I'm sure, and one of the frustrations sometimes. Is that still the case, Brad? Do we, uh, do we get distracted? Because, of course, money in golf has changed and it's almost exponentially grown since, you know, the, the whole Tiger Woods late explosion in the late 90s there. It probably would have been less of a factor in your thinking. Has that changed the way – younger people in particular think about the game you were sort of doing it for fun you loved it you enjoyed the practice and then you know i figured at some point you figured out where well, you can do this for a living and you can make some money doing it is that still the process or is that changed now to you can really get rich playing golf i might have a go at that i think to a degree yes i like i remember playing in a tournament somewhere in japan and my friend was up there caddying for me and i think we had a good tournament might have come six or something and we're sitting there at the end getting ready to pack our stuff up and leave for the next tournament. He's sitting there looking at me and he just said, damn, he goes, you just won $50,000. And I went, yeah, whatever. Like I, to me, it wasn't about the money. It was about, I love golf. I'm good at it. Whatever happens, happens. And if the money comes along, that's great. I never played for the money. And I think you'll find that with a lot of the successful pros, even today. I don't think they play it for the money. They play it for the love. And they play it for the challenge. But there are people that will be not forced into golf but, um, you know, tracked along the path to golf because of the money. They see the the dollars at the end of it and think, all right, I might have give a shot at this because there is an opportunity for me to, to do something. But I think the most successful players play because they love it. They don't play because they're going to get rich off it. If you're playing for the money, you're probably not going to make it, are you? At some point, you're going to get found out because that brings a whole different kind of pressure, which is not the same as playing a game for the love of it, I think, which is what you're sort of talking about. Let's talk about your playing, Brad. And I always think about this. There's a whole generation of people who only ever knew Richie Bennett as a cricket commentator. Didn't realise he was a cricket player. <laughs> There'll be a whole generation <laughs> of people who probably only know you as a golf co- coach. Of course, you're a phenomenal player in your day. Played President's Cup. You won in America. You won here in Australia. A couple of extraordinarily memorable Masters wins. You won in Japan. Remind us a bit about that journey. It started, as we know, 15 years old as an amateur. You got an invite to play in the Vic Open. How did that sort of unfold? What do you remember about those times and how that unfolded? And you mentioned in there, and I'd like to hear the story, is the first time you saw Norman hit a driver. When was that? I think I was about 12 years old or maybe 11 years old. And I uh, Actually, it was, I was 11 years old. It was at the, the uh, Victorian Open at Metropolitan. And I was laying down behind the fourth tee at Metro and the, there's a bit of a ski slope at the back of the tee. So I was like grass high. My nose was basically on the same level as the golf ball. And I, he was playing, I remember it vividly, he was playing with Curtis Strange. And Curtis stood up and hit this sort of high lollipopper up the fairway and I thought, yeah, he's, he's a pretty good player. And he was playing with Peter Sweeney, who was one of the top amateurs at the time. And ironically, I uh, used to play with Peter eventually at Kingswood in the pennant matches and stuff like that. And he was top amateur at the time. And he sort of lollipopped one down there as well. And and then this Norman drive just took off and it, it like it hit the almost like he uh, not topped it, but it just went so low for the first, like I said, 200 yards. And all of a sudden you could hear it fizz up into the air and it, 
it flew it was still going up when it flew by both their drives and i just said like that's how you want to hit a golf ball that just looks so impressive so that was my mission after that and the next year at the vic open at kingston heath in 79 my dad let me wag school for the day dropped me off at the front gate at kingston heath and let me walk in and go watch. I just joined the golf club at that point. I had to be 12 years old. Joined at Rossdale in Melbourne. And I walked in and on the first tee was Greg Norman. So I thought, damn, I'll go watch him because I remember that from last year. And during that year, he'd, he'd sort of uh, made a bit of a, a uh, in surge at the US Masters. I think it was his first Masters. He came fourth in 1981. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, around that time, he'd won the Martini and he won the world match play. He'd won, you know, he was starting to hit the, the stage as a big player. So this is pretty much unheard of. But in these days is that I walked onto the first tee and I stood right next to him and his caddy and I walked around for the whole 18-hole practice round and there was not one other person there. It was wow. just me, Greg wow. Norman, and his caddy. So I walked around, got up close asked him a few questions, watched, basically had my own practice round with Greg Norm without hitting a golf ball myself. And from that day on, that was when I really learned or aspired to get good at golf. And that was, you know, that's things that you just really don't get the opportunity to do much anymore. They got, you know, roped off or Mm -hmm. people don't turn up. They play nine-hole practice in a pro-am and they're not as, you know, ambitious or forthcoming with the the galleries or the little kids walking around and it was pretty cool that, that speaks to the importance <clears throat> the important role that players have doesn't it? i think of jeff ogilvy the same he talks about he lived adjacent to, to i think it was royal melbourne he would jump the back fence and go and watch norman and some of the other big players play as a player later in your career do you realize the power that you have because that's a that's a life changer there Bradley Hughes decided at the age of 11 or 12 because he saw Greg Norman hit a shot and then followed him in a practice round a year or two later, that's what I'm going to do with my life. That's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? Big responsibility for players. I'm sure. Yeah, it is. And you don't really understand that when you're out there playing. And, you know, I know I always tried to remember that if people came and watched me and you know, I'd always try and be courteous to them or say, hey, mate, come over here and get in close here and check this out or Something like that, just give him a little bit of inspiration. Now, I wasn't as flamboyant as Greg Norman, obviously. No one really is. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a star set <laughs> pretty high there, mate, yeah. Yeah, but you you know, you know, remember those things. Mm. And, you know, now I'm sort of doing it in a different role as a coach. I have little kids at my club and I've had, you know, Harold Varner come there and Brendan Todd and Brant Snedeker and all these other pros and, Robert Allenby was actually there a couple of weeks ago, and I always try and get the little kids over to come and say hello, just to to meet them and watch them hit a few balls. And you know, they're not interfering, but it's given them an insight into what a life it could be if they work hard at it. And you know, that's that's my opportunity to give them a a close up experience, like like I had with uh, with Greg in those in those days, and. It worked out really great. You know, that was uh, 1979. I was 12 years old, and three years later, I I uh, qualified for the Victorian Open and got to play, got birthday cake with Greg Norman again that week because our birthday is the same day and met Lee Trevino, and that was when I knew football was going to take a hit and that I was going to 
become a golfer or at least chase the dream, even though it's still young in my life and idea of what I wanted to do, but just the impact of being able to play in that tournament. And surprisingly enough, I was uh, I was two under through the first eight holes and actually, I don't know if I was leading, but I was on the leaderboard and I got to the ninth green, saw my name on the board and subsequently just said, no, I've got to get out of here. But it was all fun and experience that you that you learn from. But you know that was just when I'm 15 years old and I see my name on the scoreboard. That was pretty cool. Yeah, well, you got you got to have a first time for seeing yourself, yeah, seeing where you are in the pack, don't you? And so might as well get it out of the way nice and at the age of 15. I think I stole one from you. I thought you'd been invited to play that big game, but you qualified. No, I had there, to pre-qualify. Is- but uh, yeah, that was. That was fun. What was that like? You, know, you must have beat a bunch of seasoned pros at the qualifier to get a spot in the field. What do you remember about that? I honestly don't remember. It was at Keysborough. I didn't shoot a great score. I think I might have shot 76 or something. They had a lot more uh, spots available in those days. But um, I remember getting in basically on the number and, yeah, the next minute I had to go to Metro. I didn't even – I nearly missed registration. I didn't know anything about that. I Tuesday, like that was on a Monday. Tuesday, I went to school, and then I had to go see the headmaster and tell him, "Hey, I'm playing this golf tournament. I need a few days off school." And and then my uncle picked me up, and I went, took me to the course to hit a few balls. And when I walked in there, they sort of grabbed me and said, "Hey, you got to register before such and such a time." So I learned I learned a lesson that way, and and learned the the life of it all. But it was fun, you know. I played right behind Graham Marsh and. I remember Eagle in the fourth hole and Graham Marsh came up to me the next day. I saw him out there and he goes, you eagled the fourth. What did you, how far was your third shot? You know, did you hold a wedge or something? I said, no way, dude. I said, I hit a driver and a three iron on the green and hold the putt. He thought I wasn't going to be that long at 15 years old, but I was basically as long as any of them. I, I hit the eighth hole in two there, the par five as well, and two putted that for birdie. So, you know, I had some length in those days. When I was younger, which, you know, that just goes to show that immature in age doesn't mean you're always immature in, in your golf, and that sort of gets us right back to the the first question that we talked about, that there are skill sets, and I guess I learned them pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we still see it, don't we? Jordan Spieth is one that comes to mind at the age of 21 and the things he did. Tiger, obviously. Lydia Ko, staggering to win an LPGA event at the age of 15, to have the, the mental capacity as you said, you see yourself on that leaderboard for the first time at the Vic Open. The standard response is to say, I'm out of here. I can't, I can't deal with this. But uh, you learn all those things. As you say, you must have had quite the swagger that week, right? Whacking it on yeah, fives in two at the good. age of 15 and pros coming up and asking you what you hit for your third. <laughs> it would have been amazing. Yeah, and I mean, I was on the front page of every newspaper in Australia and I remember my grandma cutting them all out and showing them to me later on and – we had the Channel 9 came to the classroom and interrupted our classroom. And I sat there pretending I was doing math work and all the kids in the backdrop were trying to get their head on TV. It was, it was a pretty funny, interesting time. But, you know, it, that was all that was all new and fresh and exciting. And uh, I just thought, not the glamour of it. Like, I didn't really care for the glamour side of it. I just, I just liked seeing how good I could get or how good I could possibly be and you know meeting these golfers that I'd seen on TV and 
how I compared to them. That yeah. was that was the fun part. Yeah. It's an impossible question to answer, but if you can think about it, if you went back there, what did you foresee for yourself in the future? You must, I mean, you must feel like you got the world at your feet. You qualify for the Vic Open. You do the things that you're doing at the Vic Open and all that media attention. It must have seemed both easy, uh, I would imagine, in some way, and you would have looked ahead, I would have thought, and just seen more of the same rolling on for years. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, you've got to have you've got to have some type of goal, you know. And I was never a big goal setter, but I had. Well, I, I I'll take that back. I was, but I um I was not big on letting people know what goals I had mm. because then it's not it's not your goal. Then it's someone else's as well. They hear what you want to do, and then it, you you've given your goals away. So I was always. I, I don't really know how good I was going to be. I knew that I was better than everyone else at my age, but you know, there, a lot of people can say that. But I think the challenge of playing against the pros lit lit a fire in there that I thought, how oh, well, I can compete with some of these guys and they're twice my age and been playing for for longer. And and I just I love I loved the idea of just being on a golf course and playing with people watching and scoreboards and was on tv and all that stuff it's you know something that i'd watched growing up and now i was a part of it It, the week went so quick it was amazing well it went quicker when i missed the car (laughs) (laughs) half a week yeah but i mean i did get out there again on the saturday and got to walk around and uh, i remember the following week was the masters and i was walking around outside the ropes there and i was watching greg norman and tommy nakajima were playing together and greg saw me and he brought me out under the ropes and everyone's looking at me like who's this guy and I'm like strutting down the fairway with <laughs> the shark like I was a, the walking scorer and all that but an observer out in the middle is that was pretty pretty fun to be able to yeah. you know have them recognize you and and again he he brought me into his world and into the yeah. into the action just on that simple act of doing that so I had a lot of good a lot of great memories when I was younger and you know I was fortunate to grow up in a pretty good uh, era of golfers mm-hmm. I played against uh, Brett Ogle and I played against Craig Parry uh, Brad King Glenn Joyner Shane Robinson uh, you know there was a bunch of good players that came out of the era that I I played in and we all we all pushed one another to get better and interestingly enough or Peter O'Malley you know we were all from different states, really, mm-hmm. but we we were friends because we travelled a fair bit and we'd go play the state opens and mm-hmm. and I thought all right, I could I used to beat this guy or I can beat him five times out of ten. What's he doing this week? That's you know there was always something there that that made you do well. And you know the big thing in those days was not even you wouldn't even contemplate winning a golf tournament, but to be leading amateur was mm-hmm. pretty big in the Australian Open or the or the Masters, and, and I did that in 87. I got leading amateur at the Open in 87, and I was leading amateur in the Masters in 88, and I won the Vic Amateur two years in a row, and then I won the New Zealand Amateur, and then I came semi-finalist in the Australian Amateur, and by the end of 1988, and we played the Eisenhower Cup, the World Cup in Sweden, and at that point, I just looked at myself and spoke to my dad, and I said, I got nothing else left to do. Like I, I don't want to 
strive to be leading amateur again. I've done it, so I'm going to turn pro. And in those days, with the Australian Golf Union, it was a little bit rigid back then. We had to sign paperwork when we went on the Eisenhower trip to say that we weren't going to turn pro within such and such a time and all this stuff because, you know, they invested money in you and Mm -hmm. what have you. But three days after getting home, I walked into the PGA office and signed the papers and off I went, which actually makes me laugh now because, you know, from the guys that turn pro now, they, they actually get sponsored. They <laughs> Golf Australia pays them. A thousand and a track man say, off you go, good luck. That's exactly right. We, we were lucky to get a sandwich and a can yeah. of Coke at the end of the day and weren't allowed to turn pro, but they couldn't stop me. Um, you know, it was my decision. That was just a scare tactic really, but I uh, turned pro and I had to go pre-qualify for my first tournament and Again, things happened really quickly. I went to Tasmania. I had to pre-queue, got in. I um, came seventh the first tournament there in the Tassie Open. I won my first check. I still remember it. It was $3,033.33. Wow. <laughs> and then I went to – and I thought I was rich. And then uh, I went to the Concord for the New South Wales Open the next week, which Greg Norman won, and I came 12th. And I made less than $3,000 for that. And then I went to the West Australian Open the following week and I won. And I won $18,000 and thought I was the richest man in the world. So <laughs> I had an exemption for two years and I had a pocket full of money. And off, you know, my dream was, you know, that I'd made the right choice and I was ready to keep going. Yeah, indeed. What did you do with the money? Because, of course, that can be a very sudden thing. And if you haven't come from a background of money, money can do funny things to people, can't you? People can react very strangely to it. That's an extraordinary amount of money to make in three weeks when you come from a sort of middle-class background, I think, for, would be a fair description of how you'd sort of grown up working to middle class. How did that impact you and suddenly being surrounded by these pools of money that would have been unthinkable just a month before? Yeah, it didn't really matter. I mean, I thought it was fun. I, I kept the check, like I photocopied the check and kept a copy of it. You know, in those days, well, nowadays it just <laughs> turns up in your bank a couple of days later. But Take those a screenshot actually, these days, Brad. <laughs> physically got the check. You had to you had to wait it for it to come in the mail, or you had to get it at the next tournament and then go cash it at the bank and wow. and do whatever. So I don't think I really cared about the money. I thought it was cool. You know, that it helped things. I, I don't remember doing anything special with it. I just put it in the bank and, you know, just paid off. You know, I'd, I'd bought a, a half-decent car just to drive around in before that, and that just helped pay for that. But I was really fortunate. I had a, I had a pretty good job back in the day where I worked down the wharf. A lot of people think that's a pretty rough place in that era, but uh-huh. as a, I was a clerk at the wharf, my my family, my father and his two brothers were part of it as well and sort of became a family affair. I worked with a few football players down there. As a, it was a great job and it was a half-day half job. You'd work from 7 till 2 or 2 till 9 or midnight till 6. So that gave me half the day to go practice. And it was great, great pay. A lot of my friends, you know, used to laugh, I, you know, I'm talking mid-80s, and I was probably making $40,000 a year at, wow. at my job, which was great money in those yeah, days. For sure. A lot of my friends went to college and couldn't get a job and were bank tellers for 11000 So, you know, I, I had a pretty good – well, I lucked into that, I guess. But the beauty of that job is, like I said, it gave me half the day to practice. And then 
I was very fortunate when I decided to turn pro that the the boss of that company said he would give me a year's leave that I could take a year off. If it didn't work out, my job would still be there. Wow, that's a huge... When I came back and three weeks later, I called him up and said, I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, but uh, no thanks. Did you have a roadmap at the time? When you turned professional, had you plotted out, well, I'm going to do this and this and this, or was it just, I'm turning pro, where's the first event that I can go and qualify for, and off you went? Yeah, well, I didn't know much about the rest of the world at that point. You know, I'd never... You know, I'd played a few tournaments overseas in amateur, but not a lot. I'd been to Thailand and Sweden, and you know, I didn't get the opportunity to travel like these guys do now. They're, you know, they're cruising over for the US amateur and the British amateur and all these things. We didn't have that opportunity. So my my first idea was just Australia. You know, I, I had ten tournaments coming up, and I made all ten cuts. Played very solid, made it into that big bicent- uh, bicentennial event at Royal Melbourne. That oh, was right. at the end of that year. Roger Davis won that, yeah. Yeah, that's correct. I, I made it in that through being in the top 20 on the money list at the time. So that was good, uh, mm. a good buzz to be able to be part of that big tournament. And then I played a little bit in Australia again at the start of the year. And then I checked out. I went, went and followed a few things i went to canada and played a few events just for experience i got invited to a couple of tournaments in europe because i was rookie of the year in australia i my first event i ever played in europe was the benson hedges tournament in fulford golf club up in york and my first round i shot 10 under (laughs) so i thought all right maybe europe's pretty good deal for me i unfortunately i played final group sunday and I, i had a not a great Sunday. I shot like one over par and got passed by a few guys, but I came top 10 in my first tournament, course record, and and um, got a few more invites, played the European Masters, Swiss Open, uh, European Open at Walton Heath, and learned a lot of lessons. I, I, this is actually quite a funny story. While we're on the Walton Heath, it just triggered a memory. I was in uh, Switzerland the week before, and, and this is all on my own. Like, I'm not traveling with anyone. I'm just doozy and around on my own i have no idea where i'm going what i'm doing mm-hmm. and they called me up and said we've given you an invite next week at the european open walton heath so i said all right cool so i fly into london from switzerland rent a car um get a map obviously no iphones and no <laughs> google maps and all that get a map from the rental place and i look at walton and drive there and it's late at night now it's like eight o'clock at night and for the life of me i couldn't find the golf course so where the hell is this golf course there's a place here that's walton on thames it's got to be here and i can't find it so i don't have enough money i didn't feel feasible to spend so much money on a hotel that late at night so i went down a side street and i slept in my car (laughs) and i woke up the next morning i went and got a pay phone and i called up the european too and i said I'm in Walton on Thames. I can't find this Walton Heath. They go, yeah, you're about 65 miles away from it. (laughs) It was in a totally different place, but it was called Walton Heath. And so that was just things you learn that you just don't know when you first start out. So that was one of my early experiences in Europe. But I actually went to the qualifying school at the end of that season in 1989 and came third at qualifying school and got my card for the following season and next minute i'm renting a place in london and playing the european tour yeah 
there's been there doesn't seem to have been any hiccups or adversity along the way so far to this point, Brad. Did that is that how it felt? I mean, one thing just led to another, and your play was good. You had some breaks. Things all just seemed to have fallen into place and just led you to. I mean, we know adversity is always going to come at some point. Did you realise it at the time, or did it all feel fairly straightforward? Yeah, it was all straightforward at that point. Um, you know, I was playing well. I was enjoying it because I was getting to travel and see different things. Um, it was, you know, it was hard because, like I said, I didn't know where to stay or no one was really looking after it then. You know, now they have PGA travel and they mm-hmm. book your places and do everything for you, but you were sort of on your own there. But I think at that time I always knew that, you know, I'm going to be away for such and such length of time and then I'm going to be home and then I'll look at the next venture. But moving to London was difficult, like, I did not have a good year the next year. I didn't – I had nowhere to practice. I used to go hit balls out in the field somewhere when I was home. Um, the travel was difficult because you'd always be flying in and out of London, so passports and change money every week and go to Italy and back to London. Then you go to Amsterdam, back to London. It was, it was a grind. And I just didn't – you know, I had a couple of friends hanging out at my place and it was – you know, let's go down the pub and have a beer and a chicken schnitzel. And I just didn't work on it enough. I had no venue to work on enough. And I was surrounded by people that weren't not, I wouldn't say they didn't have my interests at heart, but they, there was no enthusiasm to, to work at my game as well. And, and it suffered and I didn't play very good at all that whole season. I, you know, I wasn't far off keeping my card, but I lost my, my card. And then the whole experience of Europe sat foul with me for a while. I didn't enjoy it and I didn't think I wanted to go back there. So I looked at other options and the following year I started looking at Japan mm-hmm. and my manager at the time had some great contacts there who paid for my entry fees for Japan and because I could not have done it on my own. By the end of it, it probably cost $50,000 just to try and qualify to play in Japan because there was so many um, back and forth flights to – I had to do three qualifiers just to become a member and then I had to do three more qualifiers just to get a card. So I had to go back and forth six times to Japan to do it and thankfully I played good enough each one to get through and successfully advance and got my card there through a lot of hard work and played quite good in Japan. I had a couple of good seasons there and – Obviously, it was very difficult because of the language barrier, but I enjoyed the food and I enjoyed the challenge of getting around. I used to have all the, the um, train station names written up under my hat, so I'd pull my hat down and look at, all right, what, that looks right. That looks about right. I remember, I remember catching a plane somewhere and then hopping on a bus that looked like it had the squiggle lines on the front of the bus that looked like where I had to go and I got there and I hopped out and the taxi was there and I said, can you take me to the Sendai Hotel? And he laughed because he turned around and he pointed at it and I was like right out the front of it. So there was, it was just a lot of luck and a lot of interesting things that happened over there. And, and we had a great bunch of players there at that time too. Um, Brian Jones and Graham Marsh and Wayne Smith. Peter McWinney was there. Um, Roger Mackay was there. Terry Gale. There's a lot of great players that made a a great living in Japan and I actually enjoyed it. Um, the challenge of it because it was different, but 
the fact is I could go there for three weeks and then go home. Come on. I loved the fact that I could fly back to Melbourne and I had a little apartment in Japan at the golf club that looked after me. I'd keep my clubs there. I'd keep all my clothes in. I'd just fly home basically with nothing, have a, a spare set of clubs at home to practice with for the week and then I'd hoof it back up there and pick it all up and go on to the next one. Yeah, it's been a fantastic place for Australians over the years, Japan, hasn't it? And uh, as you say, you can ring home and the time zones are good, the flight and travel is good. Just to go back to London, Brad, you said you had nowhere to practice. What was that about? Um, I lived in Richmond, which is a beautiful spot there. Um, there was a golf course there, but, you know, things were a little bit different. You know, you had to be a basically a member of places and I – and that one was a public course, and it was just hard to get on. It was just so I used to just take my golf balls down to a field, like a football field, and smack balls there. And I think that found me out that practicing is good, but you've got to play as well. And I remember several years later when I finally got my card in America, I was playing the Houston Open with uh, Lenny Watkins. We are playing the final round, and he asked me where I was a member at. I was living in Orlando at the time. I said, uh, I'm not a member anywhere, so I just go hit some balls at Lake, uh, not Lake Nona, at Cypress. Um, I can't remember the Grand Cypress. Uh, I'd go hit some balls there, here and there, and he goes, no, dude. He said, you've got to, you've got to become a member. No matter what it costs you, if it's 20000 whatever, you've got to pay it. And you've got to become a member somewhere so you can go play because you have to – you can't just hit balls on weeks off. You have to go play. So I took his advice. I joined Bay Hill, Arnold Palmer's place. It was right near where I lived. Uh, I coughed up $20,000 to join. And I got to play the course a little bit. So my weeks off was not just practice. It was getting out playing. And I think that helped. Ultimately, I had a, I had a pretty good – end the year and I kept my card for a number of years after that I had you know golfers get too worked up in hitting balls and working on their swing whereas you've got to still go play because ultimately that's what you're doing when you're you're in a in my position you know they're not giving out prizes on the range they're giving them out on the course so I had to sort of learn that over and over again even if it hurt my pocket initially it was going to be beneficial down the road down the road it's, it's an investment isn't it is how you got to look at it you invest Correct. in this now it's a capital expenditure that's going to have a return on investment down the track i'm thinking about what you're talking about the hitting balls in a field for, as a european tour player that is a legitimately unthinkable scenario in this day and age <laughs> Unthinkable. Andy Better Sullivan than is sleeping ne- in a car on the side street. No, that's well, that's true too. Although you could see that might maybe happen in, under those. But Andy Sullivan's never going to hit golf balls in a paddock. It's just not going to happen. It's a, it's it's amazing to consider that there was a time not that long ago when that was uh, kind of feasible. So uh, things have certainly changed an awful lot, haven't they? Indeed. You mentioned there, so you got to America, of course, and we know that. It feels like, Brad, from everything leading up to it and from everything I know about you, and having seen you play and heard you play, we know how good you are and were physically. It feels like your US career wasn't what it could or should have been. Do you feel that? Or are we being unreasonable when we sort of think? I, used, I only watched you play later in your life. Uh, never at your absolute peak. I only saw you on TV at your absolute peak. But my goodness, you were a level above most when it came to hitting the ball and playing the game. I think America probably didn't suit my game as well. Mm-hmm. I think Europe was probably a better spot, but that bad experience uh, early on put that on 
on the back burner that I was not committed to go play in Europe. Japan was really good for my style of game, mm-hmm. but it didn't put you in the spotlight. No one sort of knew much about Japan that wasn't on television and the world ranking points weren't as great. The money was good. The ability to come home was great, but America was the ultimate stage, really. We used to grow up watching it at 4 o'clock in the morning. <clears throat> Excuse me, 4 o'clock in the morning to watch the Masters and the US Open and just how big it all seemed, the crowds screaming and yelling and the water and the crisscross cutting patterns from the blimp of the fairways. And That was the place. And at that point, a lot of the guys had drifted over there. Craig Perry had gone there and Ogle had gone there. It was it was time to to try it out. And um, I got through about 18 months after moving over, I got through the Q school. And it was a different game because I'm, you know, I could hit the ball high if I wanted to, but I was more of a, a lower ball, a mid a mid trajectory guy. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the whole Holes didn't suit me. You know, the, they tuck the pin a lot more, and the greens were so soft. You know, if you play Royal Melbourne with a tuck pin, give me any club in the bag, and I can work it into that hole. Mm-hmm. But give me a tuck pin in America with a soft green, I've got to try and fly it 15 foot past the hole and suck it back. That wasn't my wasn't my game. I didn't see those shots as good, especially from the environment I grew up on in Melbourne. It was a, a more of a ground course. And, you know, I get back to thinking about Peter Thompson. He didn't really like playing in America either, and I can understand it. I, from growing up in Melbourne, I can understand not the displeasure of it, but the, the difference, the difficulty of it, that it didn't suit your visuals, I guess, or capabilities. So I could do it, but it was tougher. I didn't see all the shots, and... I didn't chip very well. I was not a good chipper on soft ground. And in America, it, it they either water the course and make it really wet or it just rains all the time and it's really wet anyway. So I, I was more of a digger with my pitching and chipping and I would duff a few and then that would creep into your psyche and you'd, you have to take a different approach on some holes that way. So, you know, if the course was tough and it was fast, I remember in Houston – open one year I shot like 68 66 on the weekend and came from just making the cut to nearly winning because no one could play it they're all they're all bitching and moaning about how tough the course was and I'm looking and going think you beauty this is how it should be this is I wish it was like this every week now I remember I had a stint in the west coast one year the west coast is normally uh you know fog and rain and wet mm-hmm not great in California there. And and I started out the year, I think I came 12th at the Bob Hope. I shot about 20 under. I came 8th in LA. I came 5th at the uh, the Farmers, whatever that was. It sent at Torrey Pines and I might have come 20th in Phoenix. I was, you know, I'd made a truckload of money the first part of the season and hadn't finished outside the top 25 in like five or six events and we got to the players championship and they had the the players meeting and every player to a man got up at that meeting and complained about 
how bad the West Coast was. <laughs> that the courses were too hard and the greens were too firm. And, and I'm thinking, no, that was perfect. <laughs> Put them like that every week. So the softness of the courses didn't suit me as well. Yeah, I had some good results. So the Kemper Open was soft one year and I shot a course record and came second. And, you know, there was, there was times when, it, when I was okay. But for the most part, it just didn't suit my eye. But that was where I wanted to be. It's a much easier standard of living over here compared to Australia. You know, it's very, very similar. And it, it was the big time. It was the show that was on every TV and all the time. And that's where I wanted to be. So, you know, I could have done better. I'm sure I could have done better, but didn't work out, unfortunately. But, you know, there was other sidetracks going on at the time, too, that didn't allow me to focus fully on the golf, but that's another story. But I think for the conditions, I did pretty well, but I wish I could have been able to do better. I wish I had a one, put it that way. I didn't win on the US Tour. I won on the Corn Ferry. I came second two or three times on the PGA and had a bunch of top tens, And but I wish I – Put it this way, I should have won, but I didn't. Yeah, yeah, that, uh, get, that's probably what I was trying to get at, I guess, was that it feels like you should have at least one PGA Tour victory on the resume. You, you, you're certainly good enough. There's no question about that, is there, as you've proved and as you've, you've just pointed out with uh, with your player. Did you enjoy the golf or did you lose some joy of the game because the course <clears throat> setups weren't what you would like or what you were used to? No, I enjoyed it because it allowed me a different challenge. I had to learn to hit those different shots where you know i'd either have to take some spin off it i remember playing at poppy hills in california at the pebble beach tournament and you know we we called it ploppy hills it was so wet but there was there was a hole there you know i did a four iron it was a par three i did a four iron it was an elevated tee and you had to hit it off the back edge to keep it on the green so that is so anti-Melbourne golf. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Mel- you know, in Melbourne, you're trying to land on the front edge to keep it on the back edge. Yeah. <laughs> and there you, you're trying to hit it off the back edge to hopefully keep it on the front edge, just the amount of softness and and spin. like it, It's unheard of to try and spin a four-iron back 15 foot to get it near the hole. We're, you know, we're trying to make it go forward 15 feet mm-hmm. growing up in my, my lifetime of golf. So it was a different challenge, but I learned to do it. But it just it wasn't in my my eye line, I guess. You know, it's even some of the new clubs. I hate to go back to clubs, but you know, I had a set of clubs that someone said, "Try these out. They go further." And I tried them, and they went. They did. They went ten yards further. But I'd hit them, and I'd look up, and I'd go, "Where the hell's that ball gone?" Because it would go. It would launch so high, it went out of my window of comfort that I like to see the ball launch on. So even though it went further i couldn't play those golf clubs because i forever wanted to try and see it on that 15 foot window out of the when you first look up and not a 25 foot window way up above you there's just little things like that that you you know you grew up that's why you know if you think of the australian players and the south african players are good examples how well they adapt have adapted to all the different Mm -hmm conditions of golf around the world they can play links they can play the up in the air stuff they can chip and run i remember chipping and running over here playing in a tournament with uh i think it was tommy armor the third and dave stockton jr i hit a chip and run nine iron through the rough on one hole to about two inches 
and they both looked at me like, what the heck was that? I said, that was a, that was a chip and run, dude. You've never seen that? <laughs> and they're like, no way. How? Obviously, I couldn't do it again because it was a tournament. They'd never, they'd never seen a shot like that. They would just plop it out with the lob wedge onto the green. And so it, there's a little bit less imagination over here. It's very one-dimensional, and I, I was probably more than a one-dimensional mm-hmm. player. I like to play those different shots, but not all the conditions suited that. Yeah. You mentioned it there. You touched it. There was a, a, it's a rabbit hole that we don't have to go down if you don't want to, but you mentioned there were other things and distractions. A lot of people will be with, familiar with the story of what happened with your wife and your caddy <clears throat> all those years ago. If you're comfortable, tell the story. If you're not, we can move on, but pretty difficult stuff for a bloke trying to play golf for a living. It was. Um, that's, you know, when you're talking about America, that's probably one of the other reasons I moved to America. I had to get away. You know, there was – I had a two-year-old daughter that I found out wasn't mine and you want to uh, – you basically just want to go and murder everyone involved, but I couldn't do that. So I decided the best course of action was to, all right, start again move to America, follow my dream and leave all that stuff behind. So that was tough because, you know, that not only does that affect you, um, you know, mentally or for future any relationships, it, mm-hmm. it kills your desire to go and work on your game because you just don't get that out of your head. You just It doesn't, you know, every waking moment yeah. there's that in your head. So it was really hard to concentrate on golf at that time, but got through it and got where I wanted to be and off we went. But yeah, it was not an enjoyable time to uh, raise a child till they're two years old thinking it's yours and then find out it's not. So that was, yeah, that was one aspect that is not, uh, not the greatest thing for a golfer who has to be in prime mental mm-hmm. thinking capacity to play well to have that working on your on your insides week in week out to continue to play and then to have future success which you went on to do shows an enormous amount of resilience i would have thought there's a lot of personal betrayal there isn't there obviously in a situation like that uh, that could be the end for many but it wasn't for you what do you put that down to um i guess just determination to show people that, all right, you screwed me over, but I'm not going to let that defeat me. I got, I'm, I've got more than you think I've got, not just ability, but guts. I've got more determination to prove all you wrong that you're not going to, you're not going to destroy me. Basically, that was that was my main motivation behind it. That, you know, and I feel sad for the little girl because I was her dad for two years and. She probably probably doesn't know, yeah. even to this day. I'm not sure. But, you know, it, it was really difficult. But like I said, I never confronted the people involved. I let them worry day in and day out that I was going to knock on their door or do something like that, which I never did. But I, I let them – I basically transferred the fear and the regret to them rather than me. I, I – did something else. I got out of there. I packed up all my stuff and I moved to America and I started afresh away from it and came up with a new challenge and that was to get on the US tour, which 
amazingly, or not amazingly probably if you think of it in time frame, but I think it was pretty amazing that within 16 months of that, finding out I was, you know, have a plane on the PGA Tour. Yeah, I actually think it's pretty amazing too. <laughs> I think most people who have got any familiarity with the story would agree that that's uh, that's pretty amazing. A couple of things that happened on your during your plane career. You missed out on your card one year by remote. Was it twenty six dollars or one hundred and twenty six dollars? I think I know that one, Rod. It was ninety four dollars. Ninety four. I think I might be thinking of the exchange rate. It might have been one hundred twenty six Australian. Is it the cruelest game? In the world, tell us what happened that year, and then and is it the cruelest game in the world? That is just unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, it it was. I the interesting thing is I played really well that year. That was in the year I think it was two thousand one. Mm-hmm. So I had I had quite a good season. I didn't I didn't miss that many cuts. I'm going to say out of you know, and I used to play a lot. I probably used to play thirty tournaments a year because I enjoyed traveling and playing. So I might have made at least 20 of the cuts that year, maybe missed 10, which is okay when you're playing that many times. But the incredible thing was I missed seven of those cuts by one shot. So that's $70,000. You know, let's say I came last and I'm mm-hmm. getting $10,000 if I made all those cuts. There's 70000 So that, that outweighs that $94 pretty quick. I bogeyed the last hole at the Kemper Open to come tied for third with Phil Mickelson rather than third outright. That cost me $84,000. Ouch. And the last tournament was what they now call the Sanderson Farms in Mississippi. And I fought really hard. I was I was bubble boy going in, which is no good because everyone reminds you and you're doing interviews. <laughs> That's right. It's just not a good spot to be. But I was 125th going in and I was struggling with my game a little bit because of the pressure and I just wasn't playing as good as I could. And Mississippi's Bermuda Rough, which is not my favorite. I never, I never even saw Bermuda grass until I moved to Florida. And I remember I was playing with a guy called Neil Lancaster, and he was, he knew the situation and he was egging me on. He's going, come on, buddy. Because I was like two or three shots outside the cut line. Everyone knows what the cut line is going to be when you're a player. You know, you know the mark. And I, I birdied three holes of my last five or six holes to make the cut, which gave me a shot. And he like hugging me and saying, that was awesome. Well done. He said, all right, now go finish it off on the weekend. So I played okay on the weekend, but I come to find out later on that because it was the last tournament of the year, guys were messing around. A couple of guys like backhanded putts near the end and missed them. Some guy hold a 40-footer on the last hole as for a bet against his caddy. Like all these, I don't know how true they are, but I heard all this stuff later on from people that just one of those occurrences would have been an extra hundred dollars one way or the other, and I would have made my card. Wow. So it didn't. It didn't work out, and I was Woody Austin. Basically, gave up and fell into the one twenty fifth spot, and I was one twenty six. Which it's not the biggest hurt in the world. You, know, you still get to play yeah. events the next year, but you don't get to plan anything because you know it's a last-minute thing. You're not going to be in every tournament. You have an idea which ones, but you can't set a schedule because a lot of the ones you get in aren't the ones you want to play. 
so it was it was tough to to be that guy that uh you know like nowadays is the point one two FedEx Cup points yeah. that the guy <laughs> so, misses so, out on. So but we didn't have the luxury of all that uh, playoffs and stuff then. It, it was it. We were done. Yeah, that's right. So, you, know, you right. couldn't improve. That was it. Yep, end of uh, end of the section. Is it? It's the most bizarre competitive environment in the world, isn't it? When a, a fellow competitor, Neil Lancaster, can be cheering for you the whole way through when technically you're playing against each other. That's one thing about golf that I think maybe people overlook. It's an extraordinary competitive environment, isn't it? It is, and but there's also that guy, that Neil Lancaster guy that wants you to do well. Maybe he doesn't want the other guy to <laughs> be out there and he wants you to be there or just something or he just likes you or he can see that you're struggling and is trying to encourage you. you know. there's, there's a lot of that that goes on out there too. And you'd be surprised how many players you know you don't hear on the mics or you don't hear up with the gallery and that are, that are saying, you know, good shot, mate, come on tap this one in or something. You know, there's a lot of that that goes that goes on, that goes unheard and unnoticed. So there is a, you know, it's a travelling show. There's a bit of camaraderie out there, even though we don't all travel together. You know, everyone comes in and out from different cities, but you all end up at the same place and you play practice rounds together and sort of form some friendships. And no one, I don't think anyone really wants anyone to do poorly. No. So there's always... You know, I know, uh, you know, just as a matter of fact, talking with uh, Brendan Todd, who I've helped really the last couple of years fix his game and he's been playing unbelievably well, he he does not hesitate if one of the pros asks him a question or asks him anything about me. He sends them my way. He wants them to do well, which is amazing. You'd think he'd yeah. want to keep all the secrets to himself, but he he wants other people to do well because – he wants them to do well and he thinks he's still going to do well anyway. Yeah. He wants, you know, he's going to continue to play well and he wants other people to not have to go through what he went through. Yeah. It's a, it's the real competitor, isn't it? I want you to play your very best so that when I beat you, we both know that I beat you properly. That's <laughs> probably it. That's about right. <laughs> straight up, uh, straight up um, in that way. I think there's probably also. There's an unspoken understanding, I imagine, amongst tour pros that you're all walking the same knife edge, aren't you? I mean, even Tiger to extent. I remember uh, Harrington saying once that during a rain delay at a tournament, it was during Tiger's sort of chipping yip era, and they were replaying that on the television in the clubhouse. He said most of the players couldn't bring themselves to watch it because if it could happen to him, <laughs> then, then it could happen to me. There's an unspoken understanding, isn't there? Everyone's on that knife edge. We know that you know Baker Finch lost his game, certainly his tournament game. He still plays the game amazingly, but his tournament game. Javal lost his tournament game. It can happen to anybody, can't it? I think all the players understand that, and there's there's a bit of that about it too. I suspect. Yeah, it doesn't play favourites no. golf. <laughs> no, it it can it can get at anyone. Yeah. It's just a hard game, and some of it's physical, some of it's mental, and then. Some of it's a combination, but no, they feed just, each other, don't they? <laughs> it's just not easy. It's not an easy game, but when you play them well, it seems the simplest game in the world.
Now, if you've got any interest in golf at all, I'm sure that you've already picked up more than a few nuggets from our chat with Hugo so far, but hang in there, because honestly, there is plenty more to come. Before that, though, a reminder that if you're enjoying this discussion with Brad, then there's every chance you'll like what you'll find in the Thing About Golf archives. Players, administrators, course architects, and even authors have been amongst our subjects, and each one is special in its own way. To find the whole back catalogue, head to the Golf Australia website at golfaustralia.com.au and click the podcast tab. Or do what the woke folk are doing and subscribe through a podcast app. Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts are the big three. Check out the show notes for this episode and you'll find a link to whichever one works best for you. If you are having some trouble, feel free to send me a message and I'll personally help you get it set up. You can find me on Twitter at at Rod underscore Mori, that's capital R-O-D underscore capital M-O-R-R-I, or send an email to us at golf at golfaustralia.com.au. That's also an ideal way to get in touch if you've got any feedback or suggestions. We really do love to hear from you, and I respond personally to every message that we get. Anyway, that's enough out of me. Let's get back to Brad Hughes couple more playing things I want to talk about, then we're going to come to the coaching and that whole journey, which has been an entire second career. A little bit compressed, a few less years probably at it, but it's been a remarkable journey there. I particularly want to ask you about a couple of things. The President's Cup that you played, I think 96, 4? 94. 94. Uh, I want you to talk a little bit about, about that experience. And then the two Australian Masters you won were both amazing for different reasons. We might chat a bit about that. But just talk to us first about that President's Cup. I think you were a last-minute replacement for somebody is that right yeah for the shark oh. the greg norman thing he just keeps haunting me <laughs> he's, he's determined to make your career for you <laughs> yeah he uh it was actually really interesting because throughout that year I, i'd been playing in japan and i'd played really well i had like six or seven top tens in japan so I, i'd had a few world ranking points up and i was probably in the in the 70s of the world ranking, which was pretty good for playing in Japan because the points were lessened over there. So at the same time, I'd got some invites to America and I was playing the Memorial and I played Kemper Open. I qualified for the US Open. So I was jetting around a little bit playing all, all the different tours that year. So I was involved in a lot of the meetings. They would have them at set events and those set events happened to be when I, I was there. So I would sit in at the meetings with the players and the captain at the time, David Graham. And, you know, we would, I had no, um, you know, inclination that I was ever going to be on the team because there's some pretty good players I'm sitting next to. And I'm just sort of wallowing it, taking it all in, just thinking this is pretty cool just being here. But in, so I guess it was in September that year. And I was in Japan, and I had played quite well that week. I think I'd come top 10, 7th or something. And me and my caddy, Simon Clark, we went back to my apartment there near Narita Airport, and the Canadian Open was on. And Nick Price won it. And he'd just won the British Open, he'd just won the PGA, and then he just won the Canadian Open. So he was the hot man in, in the golf. And... Interestingly enough, that was the week before the President's Cup, and they only announced the team that night. Oh, wow. So it wasn't like a month ahead like they do now. It yeah. was it was the Sunday night after the Canadian Open. They were announcing the, 
the captain's picks basically they had their they had their 10 set and then they had a couple of captain's picks so i remember talking to my simon about it and i said well, wouldn't that have been cool to get in that and he goes that would have been amazing like because we had i'd never heard anything i knew i wasn't going to get a pick so they were just you know talking two guys talking so they picked uh fort nallum who had won the world series of golf not long before and uh japanese guy watanabe so we were joking about it and i was staying in japan for the week to play with my sponsor up there and Simon was actually going up north to Hokkaido to caddy for Wayne Smith in the next tournament. So I drop him at the airport Monday morning and I get back to my shoebox apartment there and the phone's ringing and I answer it because I'm thinking it's my wife or my manager or something and this voice goes, hey, there, Brad, this is David Graham. And, and I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, bullshit. Like, <laughs> what is who, who is this? Like, what's going on? He goes, we may need you here at the President's Cup. We've, uh, we have a ticket at the, the airport for you and your caddy waiting if you'd like to come. It's a 12 o'clock flight. What do you think? And I said, he goes, we, we don't know if you're going to play, but we may need you here just in case. I said, all right, I'm going to stay in Tokyo and play my sponsor, or I'm going to go to the President's Cup <laughs> in DC. I'm going to DC. So... Here's a funny thing. Again, you know, this no cell phone thing. How did we ever survive? I don't know. I had to now try and make sure that my caddy didn't get on that plane. To So I'm leaving messages and I'm trying to speak Japanese and trying to explain that put a call out over the airport for Simon Clark to not get on this plane. So eventually here's his name because luckily he could speak a bit of Japanese. So here's his name, and he calls me up. I said, dude, we're going to D.C. Don't get on that plane. You, you come, and, come in there instead. So a few hours later at the airport, flying off, and by the time I landed, uh, I learned that Greg Norman was the one that was maybe not going to be able to play through an illness or an injury, and I took his spot. And, um, you know, that night I got – I flew off, got fitted for suits, and the next day all my clothes are there. My bag's got my name on it, and I'm having dinner at the White House with the Clintons. It was like, wow, that was such a <laughs> drastic change of scenery that that it was, you know, I was buzzing because it was the first President's Cup, and I'm sitting there, and and there's Nick Price who's just like slaughtered everyone for the mm-hmm. last three events, and VJ Singh, and you know all these guys that are on the team, and and we hung out with the Americans a little bit, and their captains like Halo, and it was like, holy cow, this is ridiculous. So, as luck would have it, I played really good in the practice days, basically running on fumes. I was that excited and from everything, and I played really well. And David Graham said to me, he goes, Brad, how did you feel about playing with Nick Price in the first round? I said, dude, you do whatever you have to do. I, how good a partner could that be like I could hit four out of bounds? It's still going <laughs> to still it. hold me up somehow, surely. <laughs> right. So, sure enough, I got paired with Nick Price the first match, and we played against Fred Couples and Davis Love, and it was it was insane. Like the first tee, I couldn't see the ball. I was that nervous. I was shaking. I didn't waggle because I didn't know where the club head was. I just put it behind the ball and kept it there. And I was hitting an iron for safety because I didn't want to shank it. 
and I hit up the fairway and hit an eight iron to about a foot, and they made me putt it, bastards. <laughs> and uh, but anyway, I birdied the first, and I birdied the uh, the six, and I birdied the eighth, and and I was three under through eight holes, and we were five down. <laughs> wow. Because they birdied the first eight holes. Wow. And then I remember getting on the ninth tee, I I said to Price, I said, come on, mate, you're shit. Like, you're meant to be number one in the world. I'm holding your ass up here. <laughs> so he, like, birdied that hole. I birdied the next. I birdied the next. He birdied the next. He hold a five iron for an eagle on the next. And then I birdied 14, and we got back to square. Wow. So, but we eventually lost. Freddie did a Freddie thing on the 17th with a 30-footer, and we lost. But there was probably still one of the the best scoring matches ever in President's yeah. Cup football. Like basically, everyone birdied every hole. So that was a heck of a lot of fun. And I got a little bit tired by the end of it, but it was, uh, you know, just the excitement of him being part of the first one, even though officially I wasn't a selection, but. I was part of it and played pretty well. So that was uh, one of the – probably the highlight of my golf career to be part of that scene and for that week. It's an awfully long way from the suburbs of Melbourne, Brad, to the first tee with Fred Couples, Davis Love and Nick Price in Washington, D.C. Yeah, there's like George Bush yeah. and uh, <laughs> Byron the- Nelson was <laughs> throwing the coin up. There's like all these guys. That's why I couldn't see on the first tee. Yeah. I was like – taken back from everyone have you had moments where you've pinched yourself like that not sort of- really i mean you 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 think that you can well you, you think that that's what you want to achieve you want to be on that scene but you know that was pretty overwhelming with all the presidents and, and you know and like i said byron nelson's flipping the coin like holy cow like <laughs> heads or tails who goes first it was it was amazing but you know, it was an awesome week to be a part of. I wish we could win it more. Yeah, me too. Me <laughs> that too. would be nice. But, you know, to always say I played the first one and, and be involved in that type of matches yeah. is an a awesome memory. On a side note, it's actually pretty important, isn't it, that the it would be a fantastic thing for golf if the President's Cup became more competitive. It was fabulous at Royal Melbourne this past year. It was as fabulous at Royal Melbourne as it was horrific the time before in New York when it was just a whitewashing. It was almost over on the, the Saturday night. It would be a great thing for World Golf if the President's Cup didn't become like the Ryder Cup but became as competitive, don't you think? It would be a great yeah, thing for the Yeah, they need it for sure. Yeah, yeah. Right it, you know, I think the US team probably lost a bit of interest in it. Well, there's not as much talk about it because they, they win, but there was not as much talk about the Ryder Cup when they were winning, but now that's all that's on their mind. Yeah. That's exactly right. It would be uh, terrific golf. The, and the other two victories I mentioned there that I think probably really stand out, I can't, I'm not sure how many you had in your career all up, but to me, these are the ones that stand out, and it's my interview, so these are the ones I'm going to ask you about. The two Masters wins. Take me back to the first one. I still think that second shot you hit to 18 at Huntingdale that year might be one of the best shots hit in Australian golf. Tell us what you remember about the closing stages of that tournament. I was in a really good position there the you know i'll tell you a little side note on that is that even though i shot seven under the last day to catch peter senior and eventually beat him i won that tournament on the friday okay and i don't know if people remember this very much but the friday it was the north wind from hell and huntingdale is very much you know it every hole plays up and down up and down there's only the fifth and the 15th that sort of go the other way and the wind was crosswind on every hole 
and you could probably look this up, but I'm going to have a very good guess here. On that second day, Peter Senior shot 78. Ooh. Craig Perry shot 79. Greg Norman shot 78. There was some wickedly high numbers. The course was ridiculously hard. The greens were firm. The wind was 40 and it was sideways. And I shot 72. So I outplayed them by six, seven shots on that second round. And a lot of those guys, son, uh, third round I shot, only shot par. I didn't play very good Saturday. And a lot of those guys did. Senior shot 65 and jumped back up. You know, there's a lot of good golf on the Saturday, not by me. Mm-hmm. But that was the, the round that won it, even though everyone remembers that shot on 18. And, and the final day I hit every... I think I missed one fairway by about a foot and I hit every green in regulation and I had uh, seven birdies and ultimately, you know, I hit the three iron on the last hole. Imagine hitting the three iron in the last hole nowadays. It's <laughs> unthinkable, isn't it? It's driving a wedge now yeah. for everyone. But, you know, I hit a three iron, the wind was left to right and I drew it against the wind and it just landed really soft to about two and a half feet and tapped it in and uh, went inside, wasn't really thinking I was going to win because Peter Senior was still had control of the tournament. Mm-hmm. I was two groups ahead of Pete, and he knocked it on the last to about 20 foot, 25 feet, and had two putts to win and just babied it up a little bit short of the hole and then whiffed the next one. And a little side note on that playoff also is that, you know, I was watching on TV in the media center and not live, just on the TV there. And, yeah, I saw him miss. I thought, all right, dude, I've got to go have a playoff now. So I uh, had to find one of the rules officials because I said, I am busting to go to the toilet. i got to pee so bad. And I've just stood in there for 20 minutes watching all this unfold. Now you expect me on the tee. Can I go? And he goes, yeah, no problem. Let's go in. So I, I go in there and Peter has to sign his card. And then he, the playoff in those days was on the, started on the 17th hole. And... I've done my business. I've done my business and I am waiting there and waiting and the official goes, hang on, hang on, hang on, and then eventually drags me out. And later on when I saw it on the TV, you could actually see Peter Senior like grimacing, thinking, where the hell is this guy? So I think I had uh, a little bit of an upper edge there that, I made him wait, but it wasn't on purpose. So I was oh. being held back by the official before I got to the tee. Wow. Amazing. It's amazing those things that happen in a golf tournament. And because they go for four days, of course, there's a million reasons why you win. But we only ever remember late Sunday afternoon, don't we? But as you say, you point straight to Friday there without any hesitation. That's when the tournament was won. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? And that's yep. every week, isn't it? Every week. it's the same. Every week there's something there. It ultimately comes down to one shot and everyone thinks that's the one shot on Sunday back nine, but they're... There are many other moments yeah. throughout a tournament. Same with basketball games, isn't it? You watch the last three seconds and someone makes it on the buzzer and you think that was the game, but there was a whole hour before that of, of, of back and forth to lead up to to that point. Was that the, being the relationship you've had with Norman over the years, the Masters and his relationship with that, I'm going to imagine that that would have been pretty special in your mind, the Masters, and that would have been a particularly satisfying win? Absolutely. Um, I don't know why, but... To me, the Masters seemed to be the tournament growing up that everyone went to and everyone watched. 
and I think there was a great atmosphere about it. I caddied there for a friend, uh, one of the trainee pros or former trainee pro at my club. I caddied for him there when I was like 14 years old in the in the Masters, and I just had an affinity with the the occasion of the tournament. I really liked the how the tournament set up and the the fanfare and all the stuff that went along with it, the gold jacket and all that. And I never dreamed I'd win it, but I did. 1992, I actually uh, I led with nine holes to go. I was two in front and then played like awful on the back nine. Terrible. I three-putted the 10th par and made a couple of bad errors and ended up fourth. So I think I learned from that the next year when I got into contention again in 93 and ended up winning. You can only learn to win by being there, can't you? You can't practice what's required to win a golf tournament. It's probably different for every person who goes through it, I'm guessing, but that's exactly the only way it can unfold, isn't it? You can't know how you're going to react or how you're going to feel until you've been in a position to have a chance, can you? That's right. And, you know, if I go way back to the 88 West Australian Open that I won in my third tournament, I shot shot my first nine holes there, I shot 40. Oh, and this will be probably an interesting stat. I shot 40 the first nine, and I was leading after the first round. <laughs> what did you shoot the back nine? I shot like 31. Wow. But the, so I shot one under, shot four over, five under. Wow. But that course was so difficult. Lake Karen up that year, the greens were glass, and they were hard. And I, I led every day. I shot 71, and I shot 71, and that was leading. And then Saturday, I shot 67. So I was like four shots in head going into the last day, and I've just turned pro, and I'm staying at someone, abilited at someone's house that I didn't really know that well, and butterflies are dancing around your head all night, and I think I had 18 minutes sleep, I'm like <laughs> thinking about everything that that yeah. next day was going to bring. Yeah. I just could not get to sleep because it was a whole different situation. I wasn't playing for a salt and pepper set. I was playing for WA Open and exemptions yeah. and everything, and and I fell over the line. I won by one shot in the end, but I learned from that. Mm-hmm. And I do vividly remember in 93 driving to the course that day. I was, uh, I think, Peter, I was four behind Peter Senior. I remember I said he shot a 65 on the Saturday mm-hmm. or something. So I was at least three or four behind him going into the final round. And I was driving out to the course, and it was one of those – it was a weird drive because I, I lived about 20 minutes from where Huntingdale was. And I must have got cut off about six times by people driving. It was like idiot day on the roads. <laughs> and for some reason, normally I'd be – not raid, road rage, but you know, I'd be, uh-huh. what are you doing here? And – for some reason, I had a real calmness. I didn't. I just let him go, and I didn't say anything, and I just cruised on in my lane. And I had a real calmness that day. And on the range, I did not have a good warm up. I was feeling a bit squeezy on top of the ball and hitting these little cutty shots that I didn't like. And I had my Johnny Miller premonition, like he did at Oakmont, and I somehow I just talked myself into opening my stance up a little bit and pushing the ball back a hair. And I hit a couple to finish and I started to get my nice little drawback and I went out on the course and birdied the first two holes and hit every green and ended up winning. So it was a 
it was a, a strange day. Could have gone plenty of different ways, but I didn't let it. I made, you know, I m- didn't get mad at the people driving, and I didn't get crazy with my poor warm up. I just worked it out one little trigger before I got to the tee and fixed itself. It, it's funny, Brad, the number of tournament winners you hear say those two exact same things, some eerie, unusual sense of calmness that they can't explain ahead of the final round, and the poor warm-up before the great round <laughs> seems to be almost a staple as well. It's bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, I think, you know, again, the, you don't need to hit them perfect on the range because mm-hmm. technically it is just a warm-up but you want to obviously see some good shots or yeah. at least know you've got control of the ball. So I didn't fret that I wasn't getting it at the start because how I ended up was good. My last few balls when I made that adjustment gave me the confidence that I could just go out and do it again. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's such a mental game. Isn't it? so, there's so much of that, how you react to what you what you see and, and all those sorts of things. Matt Goggin is a guy I feel particularly sorry for. Broke a... I think it was a 10 or 14-year standing record at the Australian Masters, broke it by three and got done by, I think, four or five by you. That 98 Masters was just unbelievable. It was just the two of you, if I recall, by Sunday. Uh, you were so far ahead of the field, and you just straight to the place. What do you remember about that week? You backed yourself, if I, I'm not mistaken. I remember I was going to win that week. No one was going to beat me. Uh-huh. I just – I'd played really well leading into the tournament. I played at the – uh, Johnny Walker in Thailand, I missed the cut by one, but I felt I played pretty good. I went to the Vines, and again, I missed the cut by one, but I felt really good about my game. And I went to Sydney for the, I think it was called the Greg Norman then. I think Elizabeth might have won it. At the Australian. but I sh- At the Australian, yeah. But the Australian, as you know, is a very tough course, mm-hmm. and I hit, I came eighth and I putted like Stevie Wonder. I putted so bad. I hit 63 greens in regulation around the Australian, and I shot eight under. Ouch. Wow. And I only lost by maybe four shots or something like that or whatever it was. I was really close to winning if I had a putted half decent. So I knew I was hitting it really good, and then I got back to Melbourne, and I got on the greens, and I basically just putted for a few hours each day until I – I got my stroke back and I got my start lines back and I got my speed back. And once that happened, I, again, I went and bet on myself because I, I backed myself in 93 to win, but that was just a joke. My dad said, oh, you're 100 to 1. I said, oh, he's 50. Put that on. I got <laughs> It was like a joke. But uh, that in 98, I was again like 50 to 1 and I put a couple hundred on, but I should have put my house on. So <laughs> Hindsight, hey? I was playing so good. I, I even stood up at the – it was the 20th anniversary of the Masters and they had all the previous winners up on stage at the dinner. And whoever was hosting the evening asked me about that bet in 93 and I said, yeah, that was just a joke. I said, but I've actually – I've never backed myself again, but I have this week and I'm going to win. And I said it in front of 500 people at the dinner and they all sort of snickered like, where's this idiot? But I was that confident that I was going to win. And I remember the late, great Drew Morford came up to me the next day and he goes, damn, you told us last night you were going to win. I wish I had listened to you because <laughs> I shot I shot uh, 10 under the first That's round. That's right, yeah. You tore it up. And 
really never got past after that. No. Was it 22 under, I think, you finished? I was 24 under, 24. yeah. The previous record was 19. That's by, right. By that other guy, Greg Norman. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think Goggin finished 22, maybe. He broke I think the Goggy record. was 19. I beat him by five. By five, was it? Right. So he matched the record that had stood for it, 18 yeah. years or something and got, got roasted by, uh, by five. That must be almost unheard of. That confidence, Brad. We, I've heard Norman talk occasionally about he'd arrive somewhere and look around and think to himself, I wonder who's going to finish second. But that was rare even for him to have that much confidence that week, to stand up in front of a yeah. room of 500. Wow. I just knew just if if I worked my putting out, I knew my ball yeah. striking was not going to go away. Yeah. It'd be nice if it was like that every week, wouldn't it? Yeah. It would have been <laughs> uh, fantastic. Let's come to coaching. The – the transition, in, and it's probably all tied up together, the transition in equipment from the wooden-headed drivers to metal-headed, then eventually to titanium, really hurt a lot of players. I think you were probably one of them in terms of playing. And you've spoken before about losing the ability to feel where the club head was. As the clubs got lighter and lighter and lighter for a player like you, you couldn't feel where it was in space. Am I right about that? Am I remembering that correctly? And you started to really struggle with your game. Yeah, it was, it was more difficult. I, I couldn't... I didn't feel I could swing with the speed that I used to have because I didn't know where the club was. Mm -hmm. Um, The newer ball, you know, remember early on I talked about Greg Norman hitting that low flight bullet that then fizzed up into the air. I I had that. Brett Ogle had that too. Mm -hmm. Um, I lost the ability to hit that shot with the newer head and the bigger ball. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sorry, the no spin ball, the launch ball. So the ball would just go straight up in the air and have less spin on it, whereas I was I was basically puncturing the ball when I hit it with swing speed and compression and making it go and then letting it do its thing. So there's a really interesting fact that I've mentioned several times, but in 1998 when I played on the PGA Tour over here, I was third in total driving, which is a great stat where they combine distance and accuracy and add them together. So I was 22nd in distance, and I think I was about 30th in accuracy. So that's pretty good, pretty good golfing your mm. ball off the tee, yeah. doing that. And towards the end of that year, the head started getting a bit bigger. Pro V1 came out. And the following year, I picked up one yard distance, but I fell from 22nd to 111th in driving distance. Wow. So the – Equipment change suited some people. They could probably swing harder, miss it a bit and still get away with it and maybe get the higher launch that, and less spin that worked for them, but it didn't work for me. So I wouldn't say I totally lost my game. I was still a good driver of the ball, but my advantage had been diminished a little bit yeah. just because of, of how that formulated. And I didn't really know until several years later what had happened mm-hmm. when I – Kept trying all the new things that kept coming out, and everyone would go, you know, this is going to go ten yards further. Bullshit, it is. It's not. It's going. It's not going ten yards further. It's going the same. Yeah. But you know, it depended on on the makeup of a person, and I'm sh- I will guarantee that Greg Norman was never the driver that no. he was later on in his career because of, probably for the same fact. Yeah. You've you've hinted at it a couple of times. This. And you talked about your short game, I think, earlier, where you were saying you just couldn't see the shots. How important is that? I think that you talked about it with your ball flight too, trying a set of irons where the ball just launched so much higher. It wasn't going through the window that you were expecting to see it at. How important is that 
that aspect of the game, particularly for good players, I think, where you get used to seeing something a certain way. It's very difficult to change that, is it not? It is. I mean, you, you like to look up and see it in a certain path, mm-hmm. just like some people like to draw it and some people like to fade it and some can do both. But there's a certain shape that you like to see. Now, growing up in Melbourne, I was a really good chipper and runner, and I still am. Like, you could give me a seven or an eight iron, I will chip and run that thing like you wouldn't believe through the rough and up a hill and near the hole. But put loft in my hand, and I couldn't do it as well because I was a pincher playing on the hard of grass in Melbourne. I would get a bit steeper on it, and I'd get my hands forward, and I'd pinch that ball off the turf, and it'd be driving in a little bit low, and then two stop, two skips and stop. Now, in America on the softer ground, once I started to just miss time that little dig at the ball, and I had to hit one fat, and then you hit another one fat, and then you go, well, hang on, what's going on here? And then you skull one instead. I just lost confidence in and it. Some of it was technique, but some of it was Harry hindsight that I knew nothing about wedges. I knew nothing about bounce. I knew nothing about any of the equipment. I just would grab clubs and I'd hit them and I'd go, that's great. And that's no good. In fact, I had a set of clubs that I used for a long time and I tried to get one of the companies to match them. I brought them into them one day into the van. I said, all right, measure these things and make me a set the same as them. Same loft, same lie, same length, whatever. And I came back in after nine holes of practice and the guy looked at me and laughed. He goes, I can't do that. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, they are all over the place. I said, none of them match. <laughs> so like, but to me, they were perfect. They were perfect yeah. I knew exactly how every club behaved, but they couldn't do it because they had lofts were off, lies were off. Like all these things were, were different that to their eye was not a match, but to me, I knew exactly how they, how they performed. So I didn't know about bounce. So if I had have probably used a club with a little bit more bounce on it, a lob wedge or a sandwich, I would have got away with my technique, but I didn't know about it. So I started messing around with technique and then I got a little bit lost with it. So I wouldn't say I had the yips, but I wasn't a great chipper. I was a great chipper and runner, but not a good flopper or pitcher of the ball, except out of rough. You could do that like a bunker shot, but yeah. off the tighter lies was a bit more difficult. And I, I probably wasted a lot of shots around the green that I didn't have to if I if I knew a little bit more about uh, how bounce worked at that time and the technique gets off and saw it happen with Tiger. I, I was sort of a Tiger. I could hit a good one, then I could duff one at my foot. I'm staggered by the number of times I've heard really accomplished players say things along the same lines. They knew nothing about equipment. Some of them will tell you they know nothing about the golf swing. They just know how to play golf. It's bizarre. How could you get to that level and play for that many years, Brad, and genuinely not know anything about bounce or how it works? Yeah, or you just had your favourite. You had one that looked good or that felt good, and you just went with it. You didn't You didn't really know a lot of Mm. about the technicalities of it you know i always i used to love using uh shafts especially you know in the woods you'd always have steel shafts back in Mm -hmm. those days i would have that steel shaft tipped at the bottom where that first ferrule that first uh stepping on the shaft it was almost at the at the top of the binding Those, those shafts i used were so stiff because i knew with my big 
backswing and down cock and release it. I needed a really stiff shaft to be able to hit it as hard as I wanted to mm-hmm. and make it go straight. So, you know, babying it around was not going to work with that shaft. I could release the heck out of it and and do it. And I remember doing that at Rabina Woods one year when I won the Players' Championship. I won by, by like, 12 okay. shots. By 12, exactly. Yeah. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. That and everyone was hitting four irons off the tees and five irons because yeah. the holes were so tight. And I was hitting driver because uh-huh. I knew I could just rip it and hit it straight. And, you know, I was having sand irons in and f- flicking it on the green and hole in the putt. So it was actually probably the simplest tournament that I ever won because I was in that, that was driver control and that, that was a little bit to do with technique and also a little bit to do with how I had my club set up. But that was difficult later on to do because when you got all these newer, bigger club heads, they were lighter and hollower and Mm -hmm. hang on, I don't need to hit this off the middle. What are you talking about? Like (laughs) I want to hit it off the middle, but yeah, it just felt a lot foreign, and they—they, they, you know—I remember asking a couple of companies to to do a shaft. You know, I want—I want that thing cut at the bottom and tipped there, and they—we oh, can't do that. We've got to cut it from the other end. So, what do you mean you can't cut it at the bottom? Well, it won't fit in. Like all these little yeah. things. So I was um, consistently messing around trying to find a driver that I really liked. But growing up, I probably had. Three drivers for you know the first fifteen years of my golf life, and then I probably had three a month after that. Every you know trying to find something that would work the same. So there was a lot of inconsistencies with the search. I guess it, it one it didn't feel the same, and two there was so much on offer I didn't know which one to to use by the end of it. Too much choice. How long did Norman have that three wood in his bag for? Twenty something yeah, years. Yeah, Just- well, Nicholas had a three wood for. 40 years yeah. he used it for basically every major he won yep. and incredible and beyond yep. so you have your favorites yep. uh, and three wood is actually interesting choice because i had that was the one club i really changed i had a three wood for seven years and i had another one for about seven years and wow. three wood was was the one that most people don't change you stenson like he's yep. three you know, till the shaft basically ran out and he had to yep. do something extra but it's amazing how many guys keep their same three wood the go-to club, isn't it? It's the the security blanket. You know, if yeah. you, you want to hit more than two iron, but you don't want to hit driver. This is this trusty one that's always always got me out of trouble, and and away we go there. It's funny, you know. Karen Lund just a couple of couple of episodes ago was telling us a story about she caddied for Marty Lund at Riviera, I think it might have been. She said her sister once. Who, Marty was a terrific player, a very natural sort of player. And she was catting for her and she sort of got behind her in some shot and she said, oh, hang on, you're aiming straight at the flag there. And Marty said, well, of course I'm. She said, but no, the ball's above your feet. It's going to go left. And Marty looked at her and said, what do you mean? She'd won on the LPGA at this stage. And Karen said, well, when the ball's above your feet, it goes left. Didn't you know that? And Marty said, well, why didn't, nobody's ever told me that. <laughs> she's, she's won at the highest level. No idea that. When the ball's above your feet, you aim it a bit right because it's going to come to the left. Just extraordinary. Um, well, that's one of the pitfalls with a lot of you know being overcoached. Yeah, it? you can. Some people can just do stuff and know and trust and and do it, and others others need uh, you know fine tooth comb run over everything so they can understand it and checkpoint everything. Yeah. Well, let's talk about it because coaching is your thing now. How many tour players are you working with? Because that's, of course, what we all from outside that We must be a good coach who works with tour players. You've been helping golfers for a very long time as a coach and you've really sort of come to the fore publicly as Brendan Todd is one, obviously, that everybody knows and, and what you've done with and 
for him from the very depths to the very heights of the game again. But you're working with quite a few tour players. I'm sure you still work with plenty of other people as well. How did that transition happen? Lots of players would find it about as enjoyable as extracting their own teeth to go from playing the tour to teaching people. How come it's worked for you? I think I think it's in my nature that I I I always wanted people to do well. Even when I was playing against them, sort of like the we touched on earlier. I I liked beating them, but I also wanted people to play well and and I always I don't know if I had a big handle on my golf swing. I knew what it felt like. I didn't understand all the physics of it. And when I stopped playing in about 2008, I thought, well, all right, I know something about golf. Maybe I'll just go do some teaching. But I didn't really understand it. I was passing on stuff that people had told me that didn't necessarily work well or as well. And I thought, well, maybe there's more to this. Maybe there is, there's a better way to teach. So I came up with my own rules. I basically threw the fundamental book out the door, came up with my own fundamentals and worked out a, a design that you know about through my association with John at Advanced Ball Striking. We came up with a, a plan of, you know, it's okay to be able to tell someone what to do, but how do you make them be able to feel it and do it? So we designed a set of drills that we started teaching to people online and I started teaching them in person and they were really successful, like it it worked. And that, that gets us back to my opening line when you asked me the thing about golf is, I said that anyone can get better because I've seen it over and over and over the last 10 or 11 years that if you give the people the right process and they trust you and they do it they all get better i've never had anyone get worse it's just from the time someone hits the range and the time they leave they all hit it better i've never done one lesson where someone's worse so that's that's getting your money's worth mm-hmm. you know because a lot of people will say all right go home and work on that and you'll be for two weeks and you'll be you'll get worse before you get better and Whenever I heard that, I said, no, no, that's not the deal. That's, you don't want to get worse. You want to get better. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the pattern of the ideals that I designed with John and utilized, I just saw immediate results and everyone gets better because you can't think a golf swing. You have to be able to change the muscles or the structure or the dynamics or something because unless you change that, your brain is not going to allow it. It's going to try and think it's doing something, but you would know if you go down the driving range and you're thinking, right, I'm going to turn my shoulder and I'm going to put my left heel here and I'm going to do it, and you film it and you look at it and you're devastated because it looks exactly the same. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look any different. So you have to change over time. It, it's Golf's not a quick fix as much as people would love to do it. And, yes, I just said that I get – everyone better by the time they leave the range. So that is a quick fix to a degree, but it's more of a long-term goal. And it's very hard to explain, but I think a lot of good golfers know what they're doing. Most of them can't explain it. Yeah, couldn't articulate it. That's right. Correct, because they only need to know it for themselves. Mm -hmm. They only need to know what their swing feels like, but I'm trying to teach 100 different people a week 
and trying to come up with a different idea for each one of them that can help them get better. So I have to learn, or I did eventually learn, how to say the same thing in about 25 different ways. (laughs) one One of those ways will get through to one person where another way will get through to someone else. That's and te- that's, that's the essence of teaching. Of course, it? yeah. It's communication, isn't it? And it, Correct. you've just got to be able to understand each other. And as the coach, it's your job to have 25 different ways to say the same thing on tap so that one of them will will uh, sort of stick. The, the- I, I really only have five or six things that I teach. Yeah, I teach impact and then I teach footwork and then I teach after impact and I teach backswing and transition and I teach downswing. Mm-hmm. And that's basically it. So it's a different order than most people would teach. Most people start with the backswing and so forth. So I'm, I'm teaching the important part first and then worrying about the other bits later. But there's basically five models or ideas. I wouldn't call them model. You can, now, none of my students swing the same. They all look different. Five dynamics, you could probably call it. Uh-huh. And like I said, there's 20 different ways that I can explain each one. Uh-huh. And that's 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 teaching. That's how you got to try and get through to the the person. Plus, the drills allow them to feel it rather than think it. Mm-hmm. Surely, it's too simple, Brad. You got a piece of timber, the down underboard, and you fix Brendan Todd. That's too simple. Surely, golf has to be more complicated and more expensive to learn than that. Well, yeah. Um, in fact, a few people wrote me the other day because they showed Brendan on the last hole and Paul Azinger was saying how I'd done such a good job with him throughout the last couple of years and got him back on track. And he said something like, and Bradley Hughes fixed him in five minutes. <laughs> and <laughs> and I wish it was five minutes. But then I was speaking to Zinger during the week and about it all, and he was, he was excited what we'd done. But it didn't take five minutes to fix, but it took five minutes to diagnose what he would, had been doing wrong, in my opinion. But – it took three hours for him to start hitting better shots on the range that day, and then he took it away. And six weeks later, he was shooting 61s and 63s and getting his PGA card back. So, yes, it, it is pretty simple. But, of course, as a great player, he has a he has a better uh, ranking level than a lot of people that I teach because he'd done it before. So I, I pointed him back to something that felt normal and reliable and more, uh, you know, him, whereas some people don't have those feels or logics in their mindset. They have to earn them or learn them a little bit deeper and a little bit, you know, for a little bit longer. Yeah. How much of the research, and we'll talk about Brendan because it's such an interesting case, how much of that resurgence is just rediscovering confidence? It, it's always felt to me that the, the two things you simply cannot play good golf without are a golf ball and confidence, and confidence might be more important. In some ways. Yeah, and you know, where does confidence come from? Does it come from hitting it out of the middle? Does it come from starting it online? Does it come from being able to control your shots better? Does it come from, oh, that feels better? Or, you know, there's a lot of different ways that you can get confident. And, you know, with him, obviously, he had mental scars because of how poorly he had played. And I always do this with everyone that I first teach, you know, even if they're beginners or 10 handicappers, I've had people book lessons recently and, and they'll go, do you want me to send you a swing? I say, nope, I don't want to see it. I want to see it on the day. I don't want to – because if you send me that now, within the next week you're going to dick around with your swing and it's not even going to look the same anyway. So, 
you're going to try and do all these different things. So I, I try and do it on, on the day. So I'd never met Brendan. I'd never really heard of him because I'd been out of the game for a little while. I you know, quit playing in 2008 and he came on tour in 2011 or so and I didn't really watch a lot of golf at that point. I knew he'd won a tournament. I knew he'd won the Byron Nelson in 14. But I had to look it up. When I when he wrote me, I thought, I know that name. So I looked him up and then it went, you know, miscut, 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 nothing, you know, no status. So obviously things were drastic for him. So our first port of call was, you know, he read my book that I wrote, loved it, resonated with his idea of instead of being a position player, it was I talked a lot more about forces and pressures and dynamics and stuff like that and that resonated with him. So we he booked a three-hour session with me and we sat there for about 10 minutes and talked about, you know, where he was, where he'd been, what he wanted to do, what his goals were, did he think he had it in him, all that stuff. So I explained to him, without even watching him hit a shot, I explained to him, what he was doing wrong because he told me some of the things he worked on and he hit a big high right shot because for some reason someone had told him well you're hitting it a little bit right there let's keep the club face more closed and just rotate out of the way of it so as soon as I heard that I said well, you're not you're not releasing the club that's one thing if you just rotate out of the way you're just hanging on to it and when you club face is closed, you're fearing it's going to go left, so you just steepen your shoulders and push your hands forward as well and hit it right instead. So it was so simple to fix him that without even watching him hit a golf ball, just listening to what he had told me. So, you know, I think that's an ability that I have because I was a player, because I understand that when you're out in the course and you're doing these things and you go, whoa, where'd that shot come from? I have a I have a good idea from experience, not just from the technical side of things, why it happens. I, I know why it happens from playing like an idiot sometimes. <laughs> so it was actually a really simple fix, but that's the five-minute part. Uh-huh. Of course, the five-week part and now two-year part is working on the same things. I got him to learn to release the club first and foremost. That was drill one. Then I threw the board in because when you start releasing the club faster, you've got to then move your body faster after you release it. So we had to put the board in there to support his footwork and leg work that he could then start moving his body quicker from on the way through. So it was a little process and it was you can't do it all at once. It's a that's what the drills are for. That you go step by step. It's like like uh, learn the guitar. You learn A, then you learn B, and then you put A and B together. It's just very simple, basic stuff. I do, you know, the same stuff for everyone. It's the same things, but for different reasons. And I just, we just found the formula that I think works really well because I've turned 20 handicappers into scratch golfers within nine months. Wow. And just different things. It just, it's been outrageously, I wouldn't say lucky, but it's been outrageous how big improvements have happened in so many people. So I think it's a great formula. I've never changed it for 11 years of teaching because it just keeps working. There's no, there's no real reason to change it. It's, it's like I said, none of my golfers swing at the same, but they're all dynamically 
doing the same thing. So it just looks different based on height, body shape, different strengths in certain areas. So it's been been a lot of fun. But to get back to your original question, I've you know, I work besides with Brendan, I've worked I work with Harold Varner. Um, I've worked with Robert Allenby for a number of years. He's getting ready for the Champions Tour next year. So I just saw him a few weeks ago again for the first time for a while. A couple of other Aussies, Cameron Percy and Greg Chalmers, who've been playing quite well when they get their opportunities. Um, Perse had a bit of an injury with he broke his wrist or did yeah, something right. last year. But yeah. he's been struggling with, but all in all, his swing and his game is in good shape. Uh, ben Martin, who's a local guy in Greenville here, good player. Ollie Schneider-Jans, I've been oh, working wow. with him for about a year, and he's getting his – looks like he's going to get his PGA card back through the Corn Ferry this year, which is great. Um, I just started working with Brant Snedeker about three weeks ago. So we're uh, heading up to the US Open with him and to Augusta in another month's time, trying to see if we can get Sneds to get that elusive major. He's a good enough player to have won one, so we're – Working towards that and a few other guys, you know, on mini tours. And I had one guy I've been working with who was about to quit a year ago and he's basically hasn't shot over 72 the last year and he's won like $200,000 just on mini tours in California and Arizona. Wow. It's, un- it's unreal. So, again, they, they they all do the same the same things and that sounds um, – it sounds like a method. A system, yeah, that's right. <laughs> a system, but it's not. It's not because everyone does it for a different reason. But I just think we found the formula of how to teach someone to get better, to train their body to do it so the swing becomes a reaction rather than an action. That's that's the goal, that you can focus on your target and let your swing do its thing. Yeah. The words that I keep thinking about, because early on when you and John Erickson is the John you were referring to earlier, who people might know as lag pressure from around the internet, um, some fairly famous forums of uh, a decade or so ago, and he started the the website, the Advanced Ball Striking Forum. He's a real retro guy, John, interesting guy, really intelligent, incredibly intelligent actually, and a good player in his own right who walked away from the game for a long time. I had a lovely conversation with him the other night for about an hour. I hadn't spoken to him for ages. Oh, he's a fantastic fellow. I stumbled across him on Skype a couple of years ago myself, and we were on there for an hour and a half just having a chat. He's very retro. He was he was very big on retro clubs, very flat lies, heavy clubs, and a lot of retro clubs and persimmon and those sorts of things. And that was sort of probably the last um, in-depth look I sort of took at what the two of you were sort of doing at the time. Is that still an overriding sort of theory with you? The, the notion of ground forces and footwork, which I never saw anywhere else around that time, is now quite popular. Obviously, the little force plate work and those sorts of things, it's it's sort of accepted the reality. Is, that, is, it, is, it, is old school the right term to use with some of what it is that you're teaching? I think it's old technique, you know, the using the the ground and the, the flatter swing type ideals. But, you know, I'm not a big proponent of it all. I think, you know, I don't ask people to use flat clubs and I certainly don't ask them to use persimmons. I, you know, obviously I got people that are playing too, I can't say, hey, Snedge, get your persimmon driver out <laughs> and right. give it a crank next week. Like, have a hard enough time hitting the, the sim or whatever he's got. But, um, yeah, I'm not that crazy on all the equipment side of things because I think for the beginner, the older equipment is a great 
starting point uh-huh. because it's going to teach you better stuff. There's a bit more weight in the club. They're not as upright. The hosels are a bit longer. There's not as big a sweet spot. you got to learn. You learn to – you get feedback basically. But, of course, on the other spectrum, I'm teaching guys on tour and college players and very good amateurs and that that are going to try and or are or going to try to compete for a living that I have to put that aside and teach them to do what they can do with the other stuff as well. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, I, I'm – I'm not a stickler for all all the stuff. I understand it. I think it's great, the old stuff. I think it's – I wish the game had stayed that way, but I'm not living in that era trying to teach people to to do all that stuff. I think uh, there's room for both, but I'm teaching more the, the, newer, the newer equipment, but with the older ideas, the older dynamics of the golf swing that, you know, I hate – absolutely hate when you mention ground pressures i hate people jumping up in the air and getting on their toes because all they're going to do is stop the body and let the club and hands and fling by and they're going to hurt their wrists and they're going to break their backs eventually so i hate the idea of even the the mechanics or the bio people thinking that ground force is just pushing into the ground and jumping up because it's not there's more to it that's what the down underboard is. It teaches you that not only do you want to go vertical in your foot pressure and legs, you want to go horizontal as well. You want to keep pushing into the ground for as long as you can so you can release the heck out of that club and make your body move off that ground resistance. So that's, you know, the, the, that board has been amazing. It wasn't the ultimate key for Brendan's success, but it's been mm-hmm. a huge part of it. It's got his footwork to work better that he could release it faster and keep going faster. And it's actually incredible. I'll tell you an interesting story here. The the, uh, the down under people rang me up the other night. Uh, what are we now? Monday night here. So Saturday night, I think he called me. He goes, you're not going to believe this. He goes, I just had an order from Billy Horshaw and Xander Shoffley. Oh, really? So these are guys that I don't even work with. Mm-hmm that are seeing the benefit of the foot ground stuff that I teach. And they have didn't ask for free. They went and bought the board online, and they're going to start using it in their, in their golf swing. And, and Xander obviously basically won the tournament. He did win it off the stick last week. Yeah, Here like, he is ordering, ordering one of my down underboards. They're so. both in the tour championship field, so no, don't be giving it to them for free because they can both <laughs> afford to pay for it just quietly. That's right. <laughs> right so, so there's no. You know, it, it's obviously it, it's it's been a nice little niche that people have seen mm-hmm. thanks to Brendan's success, but I think they're seeing. You know, I spoke to Xander's caddy about, it, and he said he doesn't like Xander doesn't like the way his right foot works in his downswing so he thought the board would be a great tool to try and use so it's it's been fascinating that people are seeing what i see or what i'm trying to pass on and you know i'm i may see him at the us open explain from how to use it properly but he'll work it out yeah. you know he'll be able to feel it and he'll be able to do it and that's a that's why I'm not a big fan of training aids. I, you know, I, that is a training aid, obviously, and we have an impact bag that I use. And But all my training and, and uh, golf drills are done with a golf club. There's no fans or mm-hmm. medicine balls and stuff like that. It's, it's a golf club because that's what you're going to use when you play golf. So, 
it's been a it's been a blast to do it because like I said earlier, most people think, well, if you can play, you play. If you can't play, you teach. Yep. And it's not necessarily the case because I stood in a bunk with Gary Player and I learned a ton just watching him, mm-hmm. not even listening to him, just watching him what he was doing. And like when I was 12 years old and walking around with Greg Norman, I built my swing off Greg Norman and that golf that day of walking around with him. So it's been unreal to be able to now know that all right i've retired from playing not interested in playing i'm going to teach and i'm not just going to teach junk i'm not going to teach generic stuff i'm going to go on a limb here and i'm going to make up all my own stuff base it on what i played and what i learned from all the good players and lo and behold it worked so i probably spent more time working on understanding the swing and like I said not just my swing like a hundred different swings that I come across every week and how to explain it so I've put a lot more time and effort into my teaching than I probably ever did playing except when I was really young where I'd spend there down the range all day long hitting balls and trying to figure it out but it's been a it's been a blast and it's been really cool to you know, be able to hang with some of these great players and they trust me because I was a player myself. That's a, that's been really fun thing about it, that they, they believe in in me and put their trust in me. And, you know, I, I did an interview with Michael Breed, if everyone knows him from the Golf Channel. Mm-hmm. He, um, he laughed when I said that it's easy to teach good players because he goes, damn, he goes, I, all I do is butt heads with good players because they want to argue and they have their own point of view and everything. But I don't seem to come into that very often with the pros because I was a player and I went through it all and they, they trust and put their trust in me. And and I think I give them good information at the same time. Yeah, that real, recognising real perhaps is that there's an unspoken and, and, and in an intrinsic respect because they know that you've been there and done it yourself. You've brought me neatly to my last question. I could easily talk to you for another two hours, but I've just had a look at the time, Brad, and we'd better wrap it up. What's been, if you can possibly answer this one, what's been more satisfying? Some of those things we've talked about from your playing days or this second phase of your career with this teaching and seeing somebody like Brendan have success from where he started with you and what you saw that first session? Uh it's like the footy question, isn't it? Yeah. You know, originally I was a, a single playing golf and that was me. It was all about me. And now I'm part of a team and not just one team. I'm on a, a bunch of guys' teams. So they both have their pros and cons. Obviously, I loved it when I was a player because I loved, you know, I beat, this is not brag, and I, I beat Tiger Woods in the 1997 US Open. He was the Masters champion. Like, I beat him. Yep. And I've beat Greg Norman and I've beat Nick Price and all the So I've got to beat or play with the best and compete against them. And now I'm doing it in a different way. I'm still with the best players and I'm with beginners and I'm with college kids and I'm with 10 handicappers and everyone loves it and they're getting better. And it's part of life. You, you know, Ben Hogan secret, everyone's – talked about it for years what the heck was it well he didn't tell anyone or if he did he could have fibbed or he 
or you hit on a little bit, but I'm trying to give everyone a secret for them that's that's work. So I think that's part of the fun that I've I was able to do it and now I'm trying to allow other people to do it because ultimately unless you're a sandbagger you're <laughs> trying to trying to rig your handicap yeah. for a big tournament everyone wants to get better don't they yeah of course it's the whole point of playing isn't it is to is to get better. Is to enjoy it but to try and and can, can constantly sort of get better Brad you sound like you're in a fantastic place you sound as happy as I've ever heard you sound and that's terrific I've got to say a quick hello to you from Rob Williamson who posts all those fantastic historic videos from the Australian tournaments on Twitter that I know that you'll see from time to time just uh, wonderful stuff but it's been terrific to catch up with you and uh, congratulations on your success mate an 11 year overnight success just another one in the long line of people who've had that happen to have been great for you to take some time today mate really enjoyed it loved it thanks Rod well, that's it for episode 28. As always, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I did. Now, we didn't get to chat about Brad's now world-famous Down Underboard, but you can find out more about that at the downunderboard.com website. For more information on Brad and his theories about the golf swing and playing the game, check out bradleyhughesgolf.com or, and I do highly recommend this, give him a follow on Twitter at at bhughesgolf. Links to all of that in the show notes below. Next up on The Thing About Golf, we're going to meet one of Australia's most interesting and well-travelled players when James Nitties joins the pod on episode 29 of The Thing About Golf. Golf.